15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and welcome. Thanks for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast. This is episode 251. I am your host, or just the idiot at this end of the proceedings. Andrew Dunkley is my name and joining me is always the expert in everything, the Russ Hins of astronomy. <laughs> the idiot at the other end of the line. Fred Watson. Hello, Thank you. Fred. Thank you, Andrew. Good to, good to see you and hear you again this morning. Now, I should... Now qualify what I said about Russ Hins uh, for everybody overseas or who doesn't live in Queensland, but Russ Hins used to be a state minister in the state of Queensland many years ago, and Russ was referred to as the minister for everything because he had so many portfolios. So, um, yes, I, I suppose in the United States you'd call him the Secretary of Transport, the Secretary of Communications, the Secretary... He had all these portfolios. and uh, So we just referred to him as the minister for everything. Um, yeah, uh, quite, a, quite a character in the history of Australian politics he was. How are you, Fred? Very well, thanks. Yeah, all good. Down in Canberra yesterday. Nice to, to see you. Yeah, would have been cold. And, uh, it was just wet. It, um, I, when I went down on, on Monday afternoon, I went through horrendous uh, thunderstorms and it just rained uh, from then. And in fact, uh, my drive back last mm. night was in rain all the way. Uh, I might just mention, though, that I was down there. Um, uh, one of the reasons why I was down there was to, to attend the uh, opening celebration of Questacon's uh, space exhibition, the new Questacon in Space, wow. uh, which is open to the public as of today. Any Australian listeners who happen to be going through Canberra, you can visit this fantastic new uh, exhibition, uh, which is a duplicate of the one that uh, Questacon recently provided for the Australian Space Agency at their headquarters down in Adelaide. So... Two Fantastic. versions of the same thing. Well, I, I too, I, I plan to see the one in Adelaide. Yeah, you said so, yeah. In September. Yeah. So, I, yeah, don't let me forget. No, I will I'll I remind you. <laughs> yeah, don't let me, I really want to it's see good. that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, coming up on today's episode, we're going to uh, look at the expansion of testing of ingenuity because uh, so far so good, four tests down and uh, looking fantastic. Uh, we're also going to talk about uh, the Quasar Satellite uh, and it's not what you might think by hearing the word quasar. Uh, we'll also uh, be discussing uh, false positives when looking at exoplanets and finding oxygen and going, oh, oxygen, there are people, there's life, everything's, yeah, no, possibly not. And space blobs. Space blobs are probably the most exciting thing we've talked about in a while. Space blobs. They do exist. And questions from Bill in Michigan about the Lorenz Fitzgerald contraction. Um, that's how stars give birth. And uh, Chris in Canberra uh, has some ideas on how Starlink can help in other ways aside from providing the internet. So uh, we'll tackle all of that today on Space Nuts. Uh, but first, Fred, uh, yes, as has been sort of common practice for us the last few weeks, uh, another um, situation with ingenuity, four tests down, all highly successful. They're starting to think beyond test five, which is the pizza delivery test, and 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 start to do things that are a little bit more radical, I suppose. Yeah, the, it's this is fantastic news, Andrew, that, that NASA 
uh, are, are so pleased with the performance of the helicopter in its first four test flights. And, you know, there are images very easy to find on the web of, uh, uh, of Ingenuity doing its thing, as well as a lovely portrait of the two of them together, a, self, a selfie taken by Perseverance, yes. which has Ingenuity on the ground right next to it. Lovely stuff. Um, they're so pleased that they've extended the mission. Uh, I think by another month, it might that might not be the case, but it's certainly beyond the first. It was all supposed to be over by effectively, you know, the first week in Mar in May. Um, but what is really interesting is that uh, they uh, NASA think they've identified another landing site for uh, for um, Ingenuity, and uh, it, it, and it's in an area that's of interest to Perseverance as a you know a, a place to explore. And so what we might see is Ingenuity heading off uh, and landing in its new site, getting overhead imagery, uh, and Perseverance trundling along to follow it and do the you know the follow-up uh, exploration. I think there are some really interesting rock sites that they've identified, uh, rock strata, exposed rock, which um, is really what Perseverance is all about. Uh, you know, the main mission mm. is to go and climb up onto the Jezero uh, crater delta, uh, but they're in the foothills of that delta now, or the foothills of the, de the deposits that it left behind. So there's probably already stuff that might be interesting. Um, so we're actually seeing, it looks as though we're seeing uh, Ingenuity doing what they said it wouldn't do <laughs> because it was just a technology demonstrator, but actually doing some scouting yeah. for, for Perseverance. Yeah, that's great. I think it's, you know, if you've got the opportunity to do it, do it. I mean, if the thing crashes and burns trying to, you know, achieve um, something extraordinary... Yep. That'd be sad, but probably worth the effort. You never know what they might be able to achieve just by um, just by extending this this operation to a to a whole new level. I think it's fantastic, and they've done brilliantly so far. Yep. Uh, I I, ho I hope the whole thing doesn't sort of um, fall into the laps of bureaucrats and, and perseverance is you know trundling along, following ingenuity, and they go, oh look, there's a, there's a fossil. Yeah, yeah, we're not going there. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> actually, I think they're a bit more pragmatic than that when it comes to space yeah, exploration. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, we, we we watch with continued interest uh, at the um, uh, experiences and, uh, and whatever of the Ingenuity helicopter. Um, now, let's move on to the next topic, which is that of uh, the Quasar satellite, Quasar satellite technologies. Uh, which you know could see a revolution in space communications. This sounds very exciting. For it, it is, and um, the reason why I, I'm you know happy to mention this uh, is because it, it's a great example of the transfer of technology from astronomical pro projects uh, into the commercial world, and uh, that's one of the things that um, certainly modern governments are always looking for. They're, they're looking for the spin-offs. They're looking for the the feedback into everyday life and. And, well, we've seen examples of it already with Wi-Fi, which uh, started its life as a technology developed for uh, radio astronomers. Once again, the radio astronomers have come to the party with this. So Quasar Sat Satellite Technologies, a private company, but it's a spin-off from CSIRO, uh, which is Australia's national science agency. And, and of course, CSIRO operates things like the um, CSIRO Astronomy and Space Science, which operates ASCAP, the Australian Square kilometre array pathfinder along with other uh, organisations. Uh, but for their radio telescopes, 
CSIRO have developed technology called PAFs, uh, phased array feeds, and they are in use on the ASCAP array, the um, the Pathfinder array of dishes, which is in Western Australia. Um, and what they are, Andrew, is it's a, like a fancy radio speak name for what we would call an image sensor in the world of optical mm. astronomy, the kind of thing that's in your mobile phone, but um, senses images rather than radio waves. So a path is an image sensor, but for radio frequencies. And they have essentially revolutionized the way radio astronomers work, because traditionally radio telescopes look at one point in the sky if you want to build up an image, you've got to scan, uh, you know, take a, uh, take your data at many, many different points, moving the telescope uh, and then building up the image. But PAFs allow you to, uh, as we do with a, you know, with a, with a camera sensor, they, they allow you to take the image uh, in one shot. So what's now happened is with uh, satellite, Quasar Satellite Technologies, this spin-off company from CSIRO, They've they've turned things the other way around. They've they are now proposing to use phased array feeds, these paths, um, but to use them in uh, satellite feed dishes. In other words, the ground stations that talk to satellites, uh, if they're equipped with these phased array feeds, it means one ground one dish on the ground is not just limited to talking to one satellite, it can do it for many simultaneously. Wow. And so you hugely improve the bandwidth of your communications. And, and you know, it plays directly into uh, the thing that we, we've talked about before and we'll talk about again, the mega constellations, which we're now seeing being launched, all these huge, huge numbers of satellites. If you've got mm. several tens of thousands of satellites in orbit, um, you don't have several tens of thousands of, of down, you know, down stations, the dishes that need to talk to the satellites, but the phased array feeds will actually solve that problem. So really interesting technology spin-off there. Uh, very yeah. happy to mention it. I, and Yeah, it sounds like a fantastic sort of um, move towards um, simplifying what was, I, I suppose, a, a task that was pretty plod some you just <laughs> yeah. you, you had to do one thing at a time now you'll be able to do multiple things uh simultaneously which uh, you know is is always is always beneficial when it you, when it comes to um yeah. to working in space no doubt about I it i think uh, mm, that's great I think news plodsome is the word of the day andrew it's uh, a good one <laughs> i'm, I'm I'm going for word of the year, but I think Jab will get it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, right. no, Plotsam. That uh, suits I, me perfectly. Plotsam. <laughs> yes, sounds English. It yeah. does. <laughs> now uh, let us um, continue on because uh, we've we've got an, another story that's hit the news this week in regard to the search for life on exoplanets or exomoons, for yeah. that matter. And that is, um, you know, we, we may well find planets with oxygen atmospheres and, and immediately think, oh, you ripper, that's got to be a place where life is and we, we shouldn't get too excited about that. That's right. It, it actually, um, you know, it plays into a bigger picture question, Andrew, because this whole issue of what constitutes a biomarker and that's an unequivocal mm. sign of life processes, uh, that that pervades the whole of astronomy and space science. Uh, you know, there's been huge debates, for example, in re relation to perseverance. 
in terms of what actually is it looking for? What what could it find that will be unequivocal evidence of life? And that it turns out there aren't many things. There's um, one or two um, things that are very pointed towards life. And in fact, one of the ones I love is things called Mickey Mouse ears stromatolites, uh, which are <laughs> rock formations. With Mickey Mouse ears, they look exactly like it. The strata are bent up like this. Um, mm. uh, I've drawn a picture of them for my new book in the, the children's book, uh, as you would with a name like that. But they uh, they might be, you know, they're thought to be uh, a, a, something that will be very difficult to explain without bio biological processes. So the same sort of thing happens <clears throat> when we talk about exoplanets, which before very long, we'll have the capability to image directly and look at the signatures of gases in, in atmospheres. And we've talked for a long, long time about the possibility of biomarkers turning up in those atmospheres and indeed possibly technomarkers, which, or technosignatures, they're sometimes called, <clears throat> excuse me, which will be something like um, chlorofluorocarbons in the atmosphere of an exoplanet that you know, yep. only come from industrial processes. So you're absolutely right. Um, oxygen, we believe on our planet, has mostly originated because of, of bacterial um, emissions. <clears throat> Excuse me, many, many, um, several billion years ago, I think it was about two billion years ago that the oxygenation started. I can't remember the numbers, uh, but uh, we think that most of the oxygen is 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 from plant life, effectively, and so yeah, mm. that's a, a nice uh, step to say. Well, if you look, if you find oxygen in the atmosphere of a, a rocky exoplanet like ours, um, uh, is it a guarantee of there being life there? And that's what this new research is about, because the answer is no. Uh, there are several. Uh, you know, alternatives. This is uh, some work that uh, comes from uh, University of California, Santa Cruz, um, uh, where they have identified at least three other mechanisms that could cause an atmosphere to be oxygenated without the need for life processes. So uh, the, the bottom line is that oxygen is not enough. Um, uh, so, uh, and, and uh, once again, astrobiologists have been talking about this kind of thing for a while. What you really need to look for is oxygen, which is out of equilibrium with some other gas. Um, for example, methane or carbon dioxide. Um, yeah. You're going to be not just looking, you know, waving the flag. Yeah, we found oxygen. We've discovered life. But yeah, you will have to find other gases that complement it and together uh, which are much stronger evidence of life processes mm. the the other telltale sign of um, of life in other planets is uh, approaching intergalactic ballistic missiles <laughs> that that would be <laughs> well nature throws those at us as well actually so even that <laughs> that's <wouldn't> true be... <laughs> they're called asteroids <laughs> yes Yes, very, very true yeah. indeed. Um, so when it when it comes to identifying these markers, we're going to have to double check because it won't absolutely mean that there is probably life there. Uh, although, as you and I have discussed many times, the probability is we will find yeah. it. There will be places that have microbial life or something. I, I imagine I'll take another giant leap and say I imagine there's probably uh, planets out there that have a primordial soup and perhaps have reached the algal stage of uh, evolution. I, I would like to think that 
Um, I know a lot of people believe that there are probably planets with civilizations that are nearly as advanced or more advanced than us, but we would never find them. Um, yeah. that, that's the, the, the saddest part of the whole story. We, even if they do exist, and there's so much to say probably not, um, we will never know about them unless we or they come up with some incredible technology through particle physics to bend space and time and just sort of do a giant leap <laughs> from one part of the universe to the other and say, oh, g'day, how are you going? Look, um, can you tell me how to get to the petrol station? Um, yeah. Or something like so, that. So I, I, to qualify that, I, it is certainly possible that we, we might know about them um, because of because of technomarkers or biomarkers, there will be ways, yeah. um, like the discovery of CFCs in an atmosphere, or like the, okay, the sensing yeah, of, of radar signals, or something like that. But um, mm. you know, you're absolutely right. the 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 chances of being able to walk up there and knock on the front door, just because of the distances involved, that that is a much smaller prospect, and and that might be a good thing. Um, you know, if uh, if we look like tasty morsels to some of these advanced civilizations. Well, well, look look at it from another perspective, Fred. We have a history of hostility. We we are not nice no, people. No, no. I don't I don't think I'd want to be a part of a civilization where we turned up because you, you, you know, we know what we're like. Yeah, we... um, there's always that issue that uh, confronts us as human beings. Our nature is not always well well meaning if i can put it that way would that be a fair um, assumption yeah i'd qualify that um there's a new book just out by um somebody who specializes in this kind of thing i was listening to a review of it when i was driving down to canberra which uh, talks about there, there is an underlying niceness about humankind, although we are competitive as well, you know, and evolution's driven us that yeah. way. The, the survival of the fittest, you know, mm. the ones who can beat up their enemies the best are the ones who survive. And they write the history books too, as we well know. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> true. Yeah. And I suppose our, our early escapades into another world would be, um, you know, we come in peace yeah. because we wouldn't be sending military people straight in. You would hope <laughs> but, not. Um, no, you would hope not. Yeah. But, you know, science fiction always looks at the dark side of things, so, you know, that's probably where my brain is. <laughs> I mm. should just... But, uh, yeah. Uh, I should just mention, talking of such things, that <clears throat> um, you, uh, you, I said that um, the Questacon uh, space exhibition opened yesterday uh, and yesterday, of course, was May the 4th. Uh, and that was why. So Star there's Wars. a very strong Star Wars theme. And I got to stand next to Princess <laughs> Layla's sculpture. That, uh, I don't know whether you're familiar oh, with nice. that, but it's a it's a, yeah. a, a rather spectacular abstract sculpture, sculpture basically looking like a string, a string of DNA. I got a picture of me oh, standing right. right beside it, <laughs> which is nice. on my Twitter feed. Okay. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Yeah. There you go. Uh, we we're going we're to take a little break, but when we come back, we'll be talking more about uh, some strange things in our universe here on the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, have you visited our Space Nuts website in recent times? Are you sure? I mean, not only can you listen to the Space Nuts podcast and all our back episodes there, you can uh, go up the top and there's a whole string of links. Uh, Astronomy Daily, which 
constantly updates people on space astronomy and science news, sometimes a little bit out of left field, but a lot of the mainstream stuff uh, gets a mention there. Uh, there's also the AMA tab where you can upload your audio questions or your text questions. There's the Space Nuts shop, of course where you can uh, look at all the goods that we uh, offer for you, um, from T-shirts to caps to cups to um, silly little books uh, and so on. And uh, a bit of information about, about supporting Space Nuts in what, whatever form you, uh, you desire, whether that's to, as a patron or as a one-off donation or through, uh, through the shop. So uh, just um, have a look at it, spacenutspodcast.com. That's our website, spacenutspodcast.com. Uh, now, Fred, uh, we are going to talk now about this uh, unusual phenomenon, which has been affectionately referred to as space blobs. Now, <laughs> these space blobs appear to be um, sort of galactic in nature. Some kind, I believe they're they're quite large, uh, but they're they're more of a ghostly type of apparition than they are a. A galaxy as such. Uh, so they've been affectionately called space blobs. Do we know much about them? <laughs> no, not really. Um, and they're a relatively new phenomenon. Um, uh, and in fact, uh, their technical name is as, as entertaining as the, the blob name. Um, they're called odd radio circles. Uh, and <laughs> I, I actually know some of the, um, the researchers who've done this work quite well. <laughs> One in particular... Professor Ray Norris, who's an old friend of mine, um, it, odd radio circle is exactly the kind of thing that Ray would would describe something as, and so I'm sure that's where right. the name came from. Um, this is work that's. I'm an, I, I, on the other hand, am an odd radio presenter, so <laughs> I, I, I can understand. And they don't come much odder. Um, the <laughs> no. <laughs> So th this work goes back um, a couple of years, actually. In fact, I think it was last year that the first uh, first um, reports came in from data uh, collected uh, the year before, and they come again mm. from uh, uh, the the, um, the the observatory that I've mentioned already, the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, an array of uh, I think thirteen, fourteen metre dishes. Maybe twelve, can't remember. Um, which are in at a place called uh, the Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory in remote Western Australia, one of the quietest radio, most one of the most radio quiet places on the planet. Um, yeah. Until the uh, mega constellations of satellites go past, that's another story. Uh, but the, mm. the, but uh, the ASCAP, the Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, has done some fantastic work. For example, in uh, fast the fast radio burst science, they've contributed a lot to that. But this is another of their discoveries, and the group that are working on this, led by um, a scientist from uh, Babel, who I know reasonably well, uh, uh, based at CSI. Cairo and uh, at Western Sydney University. Uh, Babel Korybalski, I didn't uh, give you, oh, sorry, Babel, I guess it is, because there's an umlaut out there, uh, of uh, CSIRO and Western Sydney University has led the group uh, looking at these strange circles that have been found, the ORCs, orcs, uh, or uh, uh, mm. odd radio circles. Um, so the story, the, the, the backstory is, I think four were found uh, in their original survey for these things. But another one has now turned up. 
It's got a fabulous name, DESJ01024.33-2456. Which tells you exactly yeah. where in the sky it is because those numbers are its coordinates on the sky. Um, and th that's what they are. They're, they're circular structures at radio frequencies. Uh, you probably don't have to look too far to find an image of them. Uh, I'm actually looking at the Science Alert website, which has got a report on this. Astronomers detect another mysterious ghostly circle in extragalactic... It looks like a, a topographical map. Yeah, well, th that's the radio um, intensities. Radio astronomers tend mm. to, certainly at low frequencies, they tend to show their images, uh, which look like contour maps, exactly as you've said. But uh, this is overlaid with the same area area of sky at different frequencies, probably optical and yep. maybe even um, X-ray or something like that. Uh, and you can see that there is evidence that uh, this thing has a circular structure. So uh, mm. um, one of the things that you can't just find out from these ORCs is uh, without um, kind of taking other things into consideration, you can't get their distances. Um, and that's, uh, if I am remembering correctly, is because they're they're essentially, uh, you, you know, they're not emitting single frequencies. They're uh, they're they're a, what we, you would call a continuum, a radio continuum observation, and that doesn't let you work out the redshift, which doesn't let you get the distance. However, right. with uh, this new one, DESJ zero one etc., uh, what they uh, what the team have found is uh, an elliptical galaxy right in the middle of it. Um, it's a radio galaxy, so it, it emits radio waves. That means it's probably got a black hole in the middle that's churning up stuff. But it's in the dead centre of this ORC. Um, and it, it that could be a coincidence, except that two of the other four of these objects which were published last year also have one of these elliptical radio galaxies right in the centre. And I think mm. they've worked out that the, the odds of that being, uh, a, a, you know, a chance alignment, a one in, two, uh, one in 200 or thereabouts. So it looks as though this is telling you something. And in, in fact, the first thing that you can do is say, OK, if this uh, ORC, if this radio blob, this uh, odd radio circle is associated with that galaxy, then you've got its distance uh, because the galaxy, you can actually measure its distance. And that, you know, if the, uh, if the circle is uh, associated with that, then you get the distance. And once you've got the distance, you can tell what size this thing is. Um, so mm. the new one that's been discovered, uh, they get almost a million uh, light years as its dis as Whoa. its diameter and that's big <laughs> you know yeah. uh, when you think the distance between our galaxy and the andromeda galaxy our nearest large neighbor galaxy is uh, two and a half million light years uh if you imagine our galaxy with one of these circles around it it would ex you know it's, it would be halfway to the nearest galaxy so it's yeah. uh it's a or the nearest big galaxy so uh, that's telling you again that's telling you something um what these scientists do is propose three possible uh emission mechanisms uh one is uh and and i wonder if this might be the you know this might be the the answer uh the first one that they thought of um is mm. if you're looking end on to what we call a radio 
a, a radio lobe from one of these radio galaxies. And what I mean by that is that uh, when you look at uh, galaxies, uh, uh, these what we might call active galaxies, which are in fact the elliptical radio galaxies, they're, they're bright in radio frequencies, uh, often they've got these two jets coming out of the centre and that stuff being emitted by the black hole. Um, that yeah. stuff kind of hits the what we call the intergalactic medium, the uh, very rarefied plasma that surrounds galaxies. It hits that stuff and spreads out into a big bubble. So there are several of these radio galaxies. When you look at them, they've got there's a blob of radio emission in the middle. There's these two jets coming uh, in opposite directions out of the nucleus of the galaxy. And then a kind of bigger amorphous blob on the end of one of these jets, which is, as I said, where wow. this material collides with the interstellar medium, uh, sorry, the intergalactic yeah. medium. So if you imagine that we are um, looking end on at one of these radio lobes, maybe that is what uh, we're seeing. Uh, it's, it's mm. you know, it's one of the uh, one of the possibilities. Uh, and because they're end on, they, they look circular. Uh, the other two suggestions, one is a giant blast wave from the central galaxy and uh, but they struggle to get the amount of energy uh, that you'd need to, to, to form that blast wave. Uh, they suggest perhaps something like two massive, supermassive black holes merging, which would be certainly a, a gigantic, gigantic effect. Um, and the other one is, <clears throat> is just a simply a, an interaction between a radio galaxy and this interact, intergalactic medium I've been talking about. Mm. Um, but that's, you know, you'd expect if, if a galaxy is moving through that medium and something's happening to cause radio emission from, from uh, its surroundings, you'd expect it to be distorted. You wouldn't expect a perfect circle. Um, so they, no. they sort of rule that one out. So, uh, yeah, we know of five of these things now. Um, they're odd radio circles, very odd, and people are struggling to explain them. So I think this is one of these uh, things that you and I will probably talk about again down the track, Andrew. Yeah. And I guess uh, having found five, it would be a fair assumption then that these are numerous. Yeah, yeah that's right. There's lots more of them. Mm. And, uh, you know, another line of research with this is to is to observe them at different frequencies because that's always the the thing that lets you piece together the, the jigsaw puzzle of what's happening. Um, you observe them yeah. in X-rays, visible light, infrared, anything you can get hold of. Yeah, well, I, I love the name Odd Radio Circles. Space Blobs works for me too. Uh, anything along those <laughs> lines, I, I'm happy with. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, lots to learn by the sound Indeed. of it. You're listening to the Space Nuts podcast or you might be watching us on YouTube. That's your bad luck uh, with Andrew Dungley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Once again, I want to say thank you to our patrons who financially support the Space Nuts podcast. And if you want to become a patron, you can do so via our website, uh, just click on the supporter button and find out how you can support us. It's not very expensive. A few dollars a month is um, all that uh, we ask. But if you want to give more and more and more, that's up to you. The option is available. Now, you can do that through uh, Patreon.com. You can do it through Supercast uh, or you can do it through um, 
uh, other entities, uh, which are all noted on our website. So just uh, hit the supporter button at spacenutspodcast.com to find out how you can become a patron. We are certainly looking to become 100% patron supported in the future. So uh, yeah, if you would like to help us achieve that goal, uh, sign up today. It's uh, purely voluntary. Uh, I will always tell you that. You don't have to do it and we will still provide our, uh, our program to you as is. Now, uh, Fred, it's time to answer some questions and our first comes from Michigan. This is Bill. Hello, Andrew and Fred. This is Bill from Ann Arbor, Michigan with a question about special relativity. This is a, a thought experiment that seems to result in a paradox and I hope that you or any of your physicist friends could resolve it for me. So a meter stick is flying through space and on like a spear. Coming at it from the opposite direction, edge on, is a very thin flat sheet of metal with a one meter diameter hole in it. They are approaching each other at half the speed of light. The sheet of metal is also slowly moving in a direction perpendicular to the line between the two objects. So when they meet, the meter stick should just intersect the hole in the sheet metal, and not hit the sides of the hole as it passes through. Using Lorentz Fitzgerald contraction, relative to the meter stick, the sheet metal should be shrunk by 13.4% in the direction of travel, so the whole of the sheet metal is only 86.6 centimeters wide. The meter stick will definitely collide with the sheet metal. But relative to the sheet metal, the hole is 100 centimeters across, while the stick is now only 86.6 centimeters long, so it should easily pass through the hole in the sheet metal easy peasy which actually happens. Thanks for your great podcast. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> Very interesting question. Uh, chicken and the egg, basically. <laughs> uh, no, not quite, but... Um, mm. It is, yeah, it is interesting. So um, thinking about this, <clears throat> and, and what I'm now envisaging is that the stick is just slightly tilted to its direction of travel and the sheet is just slightly tilted to its direction of travel so that it, it you know in the absence of any relativistic effects they would pass through one another uh, that the, the stick would pass through the hole so uh, it all comes down to uh what you call reference frames so uh for a, a stick traveling through space its its size doesn't change from the perception of the somebody holding the stick, yeah. um, it only changes <clears throat> in relation to a stationary observer. Um, and if you've got something going going the other way, uh, that uh, has the same phenomenon. So if you're a stationary observer, you're watching these two things collide. And by the way, um, half the speed of light plus half the speed of light does not make the speed of light. Uh, as, we as we discussed last week. Last week that's right. Um, <clears throat> but um, uh, the, 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 the phenomenon uh, would be uh, that the two would actually, I think they'd pass through one another um, from my you know, I think the, the the stick would be, uh, you know, if the if the hole was um, if the hole was bigger than the stick at rest, the stick would pass through the hole. <laughs> yeah, I thought there was going to be a but. No, I don't think there is a but. I think that that's what would happen. Ah. Um, 
Yeah, I'm trying to do the thought experiment myself in my head. <laughs> yeah, I'm having it, trouble. It is all about picturing um, it. I mean, what you, I guess, what you have to do is um, look at the, uh, think about the reference frames once again. There are three reference frames involved. There's the reference frame of the moving stick. There's the reference frame of the sheet with a hole in it, and there's the there's the reference frame at rest from a stationary observer's point of view. So the Reference frame of the uh, <laughs> of the stick of the um, of the the, the 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 sheet with a hole in it. It sees the stick coming towards you. Um, foreshortened because of special relativity, uh, so it easily passes through the hole. I think the answer is it, mm -hmm. it goes through all right. Sorry, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of grasping at straws a bit here, but it's a really interesting question. <laughs> and, and, and that, and that you know, our listeners are far too clever for us. <laughs> yes, I understand that. Yeah. Uh, so, and that is called the Lorenz Fitzgerald contraction. Is that what well, that is? Yeah. So, Lorenz Fitzgerald contraction is. It's what I just described. If you think of something like a stick moving along, it's like a spear through space yeah. at uh, very near the velocity of light. Then you see this contraction. Um, once again, I keep uh, mentioning this new book of mine, but I put a cartoon in there showing an express train uh, traveling at uh, nearly the speed of light. Uh, it's a very old express train with um, a smoky engine and a driver who looks so slightly startled uh, but it's very short and um, it's a cartoon quiz because you've got to guess what its speed is as uh, uh, from from just the shortening so that's called Lorentz Fitzgerald contraction and it's called that because it was deduced actually before Einstein got to the issue uh, it, 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 if you if you take the assumption that the speed of light is always constant which we discussed last week then um, Lorentz, uh, who was German or Belgian, I can't remember, and Fitzgerald, who was Irish, these are two physicists who said, well, the things must appear to contract. Uh, but it was Einstein who kind of sorted it out and really um, dotted the I's and crossed the T's with his theory of special relativity. But yeah, it's a great name, isn't it? Lorentz oh, Fitzgerald contraction. Indeed. And uh, thank you very much, Bill, for the question. Uh, let's move on to our next question. This comes from Chris. Hey, Fred and Andrew. This is Chris from Canberra, Australia. I've been reading and thinking about the impact of the Starlink satellite constellation uh, is having on the night skies and the astronomical community and perhaps how Starlink could give back to that community. So what if each satellite had on its backside, that's the site facing away from the Earth, optical and radio sensors? Each sensor would operate independently, information being relayed back to Earth. Once on the ground, this information could be combined using software and AI systems uh, to, in essence, create optical, infrared and radio telescopes the size of the Earth and looking in all directions simultaneously. Such a system could provide simultaneous access to many different users for many different purposes. So, for example, we could have 24-hour monitoring for asteroids and comets, perhaps using an AI system uh, while somebody else is doing a lunar survey. And meantime, you've got a classroom learning astronomy and um, using it to look at constellations that are not normally visible to them. Love to hear your thoughts and comments on the concept. Keep up the good work. Chris. 
Thank you very much, Chris. Lovely to hear from you. Uh, yeah, um, getting Starlink to give back a bit like that. I mean, that's not dissimilar to what we were talking about with the Quasar satellite technologies, mm. uh, multifunctional approach to uh, satellite communications in space. But um, Starlink, uh, it's primarily there to provide uh, internet services um, in the world through a, through a um, satellite network approach. Uh, could they do something like this? Could they value add to their technology? Um, I'm not sure that they could because I, th I think the, you know, in principle, um, I, I get what Chris is saying and it's a nice idea, but I think the uh, it would just be the physical reality of doing this that makes it difficult um, because <clears throat> sensors of the kind that you'd need to do anything useful are not just like this chip in your camera, mm. um, you'd need uh, really to make anything worthwhile. You'd need um, quite large pieces of kit, uh, which um, would, uh, you know, probably <clears throat> modify the design of the satellites a lot. So Starlink satellites, for example, they're, they're relatively small. They weigh a quarter of a ton. They're pretty massive things. Um, but they... and. All that is aboard them is designed for the transmission of radio signals between Earth and the and the spacecraft. Um, if you were talking about adding radio telescopes to their backside and optical telescopes, um, you're suddenly talking about much bigger entities, and yeah. uh, it, it it would be um, not that straightforward. The other thing, of course, is that. Um, these things do change their angles um, as they as they're flying. They they their orientation is controlled in order to 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 maximise the coverage of the landscape below, and that's one of the things that's being proposed uh, to try and avoid um, these radio telescopes. Sorry, these. Um, mega constellations beaming signals into sensitive radio telescopes like the ASCAP one that we've mentioned several times uh, in this podcast. Uh, so I think um, it's a nice idea. Uh, and yeah, you know, we, we already know about uh, telescopes the size of the Earth being synthesized in, the ra in radio frequency. It's a lot harder to do it, by the way, at uh, optical wavelengths. Um, um, optical arrays are a, a much different kettle of fish from radio arrays. And that comes about because of the way you detect the radiation. Uh, fundamentally different. And mm. uh, the, um, but you, you could think about a radio telescope array on the back of these uh, Starlink satellites, for example. Um, I think there might be issues with uh, interference because the, you know, even though your radio telescopes are looking out uh, into space, uh, you're right next to a set of high power transmission transmitters, which don't just beam their radio radiation in the, in the direction that you want them to. They, they leak all over the place. So I think that would be a bit of a difficulty as well but uh thank you for the suggestion <laughs> uh, and um uh, yeah a nice idea but i suspect not practical no uh check out with elon though just send him a note <laughs> yeah. That's message right, him on twitter yeah. yeah he might go oh, it's a good idea i'll send, actually i won't do it with starlink i'll just send another sixty thousand of them up yes, there and do right. it separately that's starlink what i'll do too. yeah <laughs> Uh, of course, uh, Starlink is starting to make its presence felt over Australia now because I, I believe it is available to people living on the um, 
thirty-second parallel, uh, the or the thirty-second uh, degree latitude. So it's uh, starting to um, uh, roll out in Australia, and I believe it'll be available uh, in Sydney this month, or is it next month? So you know, um, it's starting to happen here. Uh, of course, it's available in many other places around the world as well. One of the um, downsides of Starlink technology, Fred, that I heard is uh, it's not very uh, the, the, the gear on the ground that you have to get attached to your place, which comes in a box and you have to set it up yourself in a lot of cases, uh, is it's um, temperature se- sensitive. So in outback areas where the temperature gets well up yeah, towards 50 degrees, <clears throat> it, could, it could struggle. So it will be interesting to see how well it copes with our conditions but um you know uh it's it's happening uh aside from the controversy that uh, obviously people such as your good self uh see with starlink and and the other services that are being put up there in terms of light pollution and uh, uh you know, the, the encroachment on radio astronomy and uh, all those other issues hope hopefully there's room for everybody that's that's what i hope um I know, yeah. they, I know they're trying to take it into account, but yeah, yeah. Yep. compromise all, all along the way. Mm, mm, indeed. Uh, Chris, thanks for your question. Lovely to hear from you. And don't forget, if you have a question for us, go to our website, spacenutspodcast.com, click on the AMA tab at the top, and you can record your question using your voice. If you've got a, a microphone in uh, your device, whether it's a smartphone or a tablet or a computer, you can record it for us. And don't forget, uh, forget to tell us who you are and where you're from. Uh, and your question, of course. Um, I, you know, we got, we got 20 questions the other day with everybody saying who they were and where they were from, but there were no questions. Um, <laughs> but that's fine. But um, you can also send us your question via uh, our text uplink, our email uplink on the same tab, AMA tab on spacenutspodcast.com. We welcome them all. Uh, and Fred, that brings us to the end of another episode, 251. Thank you so much. Lovely to catch up again. Yeah, great to talk. And we'll do it again soon. We will indeed. That's Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large from Space Nuts and from me, Andrew Dunkley and Hugh in the studio. Thanks for following us. Don't forget to tell your friends about us and we'll catch you again next week on another episode of the Space Nuts podcast. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.